0: The diaspora, as a part of education, is naturally its own story about people moving across an ocean and them surviving.
1: We've arrived. We're already here. Who
0: is on the shows? Who is, you know, counted in populations? Who is invisible?
1: Your very existence is, by default, a counterargument to the things that had sought to make you not exist. The
2: thing about Afro-Caribbean or being Afro was to assert one's Black identity. So a lot of the sort of Afro-Caribbean identity, is often just an attitude and it's more to do with how people see themselves.
1: Being seen, being heard, being able to tell our own stories and show that we're here and that these are the things that are not only valuable to us, but these are things that are valuable to you. You just don't know it yet.
3: I'm Dan of Primary Source, and this is What Teachers Need to Know Africa Edition, the podcast that explores current events, history, and culture with an eye towards the complexity and humanity found across this vibrant and diverse continent. The creation of this podcast was made possible through support and collaboration with the African Study Center at Boston University. It was the esteemed historian and early leader of Africana studies, John Henrik Clark, who said, Africa is our center of gravity, our cultural and spiritual mother and father, our beating heart, no matter where we live on the face of this earth. This one sentence contains a world of critique and acknowledgement. It's a critique of the notion that African people outside of Africa are untethered to the continent. It's an acknowledgement that Africa exists beyond borders, beyond geography. Africa has been carried across oceans and planted in the soil of countless hills and valleys. The sounds of Africa emanate from living rooms, backyards, amphitheaters, and radios around the world. The colors, patterns, and dimensions of Africa are worn on sleeves and light up screens in every hemisphere on Earth. Africa is felt by people who have not been on the continent for generations, yet who refuse to relinquish ties to places that ancestors once touched and tread. John Henry Clark's statement is a declaration that Africa is a vital part of the lives and ways of being for people who are dispersed across continents— even if this fact remains underrecognized by many africa and africanness is global even if this reality has historically been undervalued in certain quarters africans and african cultural influences have become entrenched across the world over the course of centuries still this history is often invisible in classrooms but there's ample potential in schools to call attention to the creativity, originality, perseverance, and fortitude of Africans outside of Africa. In this episode, we're talking about diaspora and what it means to be African outside of Africa. We'll talk with Sean Jacobs, who teaches at the New School in New York City, and Son Michaud, who teaches at Harvard University, Each brings to this episode their insights as scholars, educators, activists, and individuals who personally know what it means to hold on to and nurture a sense of Africanness outside of Africa. Let's first turn to Sean Jacobs.
2: My name is Sean Jacobs. I'm an associate professor of international affairs at the New School in New York. And I'm also the founder and editor of Africa as a country. I am originally from Cape Town, um in South Africa, where I was born and grew up. I came to the US the first time in the mid-1990s as a graduate student, and I would think of myself as an immigrant.
3: When we talk about Africans outside of Africa, what we're really talking about is a global diaspora. But what exactly is that word? Diaspora.
2: Historically, the term referred to the Jewish diaspora, the disbursement of Jewish people because of various pogroms, being oppressed, and people are then forced to to live in other places, in other senses. We think of people moving because of forms of economic deprivation. So you have to migrate because you need to live, you need to find work to sustain yourself. The diaspora is basically the community that is away from home now. It is true that home, means different things to different people. Not all African people think that they need to return to Africa. So there's this idea of having a home and having a dispersed population which we set up somewhere else. So there is a sense of some people would like to return to this place, but for others, they've established the identity away from this home. And they just have sometimes a emotional connection, They have a connection that is spiritual, but in other cases, people would like to return. Now, there's also a population where you did not move because of economics, you didn't move because of war, or you did not move because you have a family connection. People from the Caribbean often move to New York City, and then some other relatives will join them later. In my case, I came as a student, and later on, I I came to work here. never felt any pressure to move here. I never felt any pressure to leave South Africa.
3: The history of the African diaspora is inseparable from the transatlantic slave trade, colonialism, imperialism, and neo-imperialism. Yet this hard history alone does not entirely account for the global nature of African peoplehood. So let's trace the long arc of diaspora and find within it not only examples of oppression, but also examples of agency opportunity, and tenacity.
2: The Atlantic slave trade brought large amounts of people to the Americas in general, uh, North America, South America, and the Caribbean. And in fact, the amount of people that came to the U.S. were in proportion way smaller than the people who end up in the Caribbean and who end up um, in South America. So that is the first major displacing, through slavery, large amounts of people to construct identities, out of the stuff that they brought with them, sort of bits and pieces of their African identity. They bring certain traditions around religion, whether it is that they keep practicing African religion, whether it is in the way that they incorporate elements of that into their new conditions. And with that, they come other practices, food, style, music, cultural things. They brought with them to the new world. And in that new world, they also form other religions, like Rastafari is an example of that. And then through that, uh, new identities are being formed. I think the next is definitely in Europe's uh, colonization of Africa. There's a long issue that dates back to the 17th century. The big break is really the, the so-called scramble for Africa in the 1880s. There's this meeting at which African countries are being carved up by Europeans. People are moving in between these places. You start seeing populations of Africans in France, in Marseille, in Paris, at some point, there are more North Africans going. At other points, there's more people going from West Africa. You see the same in Britain, where it is initially mostly students, political exiles. And then there's a large migration in the 1950s that go to England, from the Caribbean mostly. And finally, look at what's going on in the 1980s, the Somali diaspora. That You see this large-scale migration of Somalis to Sweden, Denmark. Even the U.S., there's a community in the Midwest, Minneapolis, St. Paul. you have an autonomous Somali community forming, uh, and in a way also transforming local culture. And also people's understanding of those places.
3: The African diaspora is not one thing. African people are not and have never been one people with one story. Yet this is not always recognized. So what parts of the African diaspora tend to be visible? And where is the diaspora ignored and even erased? And as we look around the world, where do we see African cultural influences taking root and deeply contributing to societies?
2: Jamaica, the largest English-speaking island in the Caribbean, it gets a lot of the attention. And that's partly also because it also has produced Reggae music is invented like a new religion in the 20th century, it brought us from Mali. It, it does really well in the Olympics. So there are other English-speaking islands. There are people here from Trinidad, from Antigua, but Jamaica kind of dominates. It means that when we say Caribbean, if you're in, in North America, people will think Jamaica. There are other islands that are also part of the Caribbean. So you have the Dominican Republic scene, as part of sort of a Spanish-speaking world. There's some debates about it as an island of people, mostly of African descent. How does that relate to the rest of the Caribbean? Because it's obvious to anybody with some idea of African identity, African diasporic identity, that that is an island that is part of that story, but people don't think of it. Cuba's world is so integrated with the rest of the Caribbean. It's an island with a rich history in terms of its African identity, religion, music, its own relationship to Africa. And then finally, if you think of an island like Haiti, right? Haiti is French-speaking, but Haiti's Haiti's sin, and I put that in quotes, in the West, is that it was the first island to resist and, if you want, defeat slavery. So it presented a threat from the beginning. And so it was essentially put outside in a way, out of the Caribbean, when in fact, again, musically, culturally, politically, it shares many of the sort of same vibrant cultures with the rest of the Caribbean. There's ways in which communities were made to be part of the American story and the ways in which other Caribbean communities were made to stay sort of outside of that story. And I think we see that being reproduced still in the way that we think about the Caribbean. The Caribbean is, in most of the cases, Afro- or black-majority societies. So it's not a surprise if you see cultural expressions, language, style, public expression, in which it is framed by being black, being African, and it's unapologetically part of the country's makeup. Nobody can dispute African Americans, their influence in, in reshaping American popular culture, whether it is jazz, hip-hop, what is American popular music? It's music created, devised by, conceptualized by black people, right? Even if the mainstream is resisting it or, you know, being reluctant to accept it, they cannot deny that. And again, these things, people fought for that in the US. People had to fight. I would say that it has had profound influences on how, for example, you see more of the presence of black people in like, say, British public life. When people think of like what is culture, the way that they think about black players uh, football players who's english they used to be that it was a, a white person now when people think who's english and who is representing england on a soccer field the heart of the english team were these like young black players and so an identity that was always thought of as the queen and tea and so on suddenly meant something else and it's easy when you think of say african diaspora in the u.s to only highlight the stories of what i would call middle class cosmopolitan people who can move around with passports it's harder it's more necessary to teach students about those other kind of communities of the african diaspora like for example people who, who came to work in slaughterhouses from sudan or from east africa like in like montana or somewhere in like the in the west or the midwest like that's also part of the african diaspora large communities of people very working class, whose children aren't necessarily walking around and can take lots. There's other kinds of African identities, mostly working class, that also come to the U.S., that often when people tell these stories about diaspora, they don't get included. And I think it's useful to show that complexity.
3: Part of the reality of diaspora is that identities, cultures, and modes of expression adapt, evolve, absorb different influences, and take on new shapes. This holds true for language and communication in particular. So what has happened in the ways that people from Africa and of African descent express themselves? And how have these expressions changed over time as African people took root in the Americas, the Caribbean, and elsewhere around the world?
2: Being able to speak in a code that the person you are fighting with or that you're resisting, that's very useful because then they don't often understand what people are saying. But I think to a large extent, most of the Creoles was to create like a common language. And I would argue that it also then became a kind of democratic language. So we can think of Jamaican patois, Haitian Creole, even some of the ways in which language developed in African American communities where you have people keeping the remnants of a language that they brought with them. What Creoles point to is not just the ability to create a code in which it's a a way to protect yourself, and it's a way in which to construct an alternative reality that's different from the one that's oppressing you, but I also think it points to something else that is a bit more democratic, and I think Haitian Creole is an example of that. It becomes like the national language. It's one of the few places in the world where you have elevated. The language that the people form to the point of the national language.
3: Language is a powerful tool. Yet in the U.S. context, African-American English, Black vernaculars, and the linguistic prowess of this particular facet of a global African diaspora has often been disparaged and dismissed as broken English. This denies inventiveness and the legitimacy of the languages spoken across the diaspora. Let's turn to Sun Michaud and hone in on one particular community, the Gullah Geechee community. Let's focus on Gullah identity and language and listen to a native speaker define Gullah on its own terms.
1: I am Sun Michaud, Gullah Geechee Binya, born and raised, low country uh, native. And I am the first and only instructor at Harvard University of my native language, Gullah. So, There's a process by which I believe there are people who immerse themselves in ethnicity. When you're part of an ethnic group that has shared culture, traditions, things of that nature, there's a sense of identity and belonging that influences your consciousness on a level where you're sometimes not even cognitively aware that it's there. It's the thing that Black people have, but so much of what we consider to be cultural or ethnic has been obfuscated by the conditions where, that we live in that sometimes we don't really know how to point at it and say, that's it. That's the thing right there. This is what we do. And when we come together and talk about those things and bond over those things, those are the things that make us feel closer to one another, and, and in manifesting that, it makes us want to protect it. Gullah Geechee is actually related to our West African ancestors from the Sierra Leone region. There's the Gola tribe and the Geechee tribe. And of course, due to the fact that our ancestors were brought over during um, Middle Passage and here, and not organized by way of tribe once they arrived. In fact, it was the exact opposite that people who spoke the same language and people who were from the same tribes were actually uh, mismatched so that they wouldn't be able to have solidarity and uh, communicate. The way it works out is the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage corridor is a strand of land from about Wilmington or North Carolina, inland about 35 miles. And they just follow that strand all the way from North Carolina through South Carolina, through Georgia to Florida. about Jacksonville. Now, that's where most of us are centered. Now, North Carolina, South Carolina typically identify the people as Gullah as well as the language, but Geechee as essentially contemporary Gullah. And Georgia, Florida will often refer to themselves as Geechee and Gullah as the language. But one of the things that kind of complicates things a little is that Geechee was also used as a slur. So a lot of people were reluctant to be identified as Geechee and just relegated it to being a description of the way that someone spoke. Gullah is symbolic in many ways of perseverance, of survival, of the joy balancing out with the pain and finding a way through, holding on to your truest self. All those ancestors who found ways to carry over things from their motherland to this hostile environment and hold on to them generation after generation after generation to the point where i can talk like this yeah today in 2022 and people in the bahamas that sound like this when they talk to me and then when we both get on a, a plane or a boat and go over to Sierra, Sierra Leone, the people in the max how how we we for sound like this yeah, when we crack tea just like they do if all of us sound like this at the same time we Throughout the diaspora. Then all asking leave a plane in Sierra Leone and go over to Hawaii and then them um, boys talking about like this, y'all. And they saying, bro, too. You know, gee, you, you gotta know where that comes from. Everybody wanna know where that comes from. How come all them boys um, sound the seem like that? Then we go over to Guyana and them boys sound like that, too. That's your Africanness refusing to go away. It's your Africanness refusing to say die.
3: Language is one way that Africanness refuses to die. But Africanness has never been fixed or static. And languages meld and morph over time. And this can create confusion when people hear about pigeons or creoles. So what do these terms mean? And what do they tell us about African languages across time, across place, and throughout the diaspora?
1: A pigeon is basically a utilitarian sort of code speak where you take two or more languages, often when there's something that needs to be done, like say for example, trading, bartering, things like that, where these are separate languages where you take bits and pieces of each language and piece them together for those two sides to be able to communicate with one another. If you do that long enough and develop that, and that language survives a generation that now speaks that pidgin, But it's rule governed in and of itself it has its own rules that's when it becomes a creole i think of a pigeon as parents and a creole is the child of those parents so when the language switches over from pigeon it's very very practical whereas when it morphs into this creole it has rules that are now in response to lived experiences it has context it has culture around it but there are certain variations that are, again, in response to local circumstances, different elements that influence the way that people speak it over here, and then they speak it differently 20 miles away. Charleston, Gullah doesn't necessarily sound like Buford's Gullah, but people from Buford and Charleston can communicate with one another just fine.
3: The Gullah community has long been misunderstood and subject to peoples from outside of the community making assumptions about it. What have those assumptions been? What did they get wrong? And why is it necessary to correct these misconceptions?
1: A lot of times, people would just assume that with Gullah, the thing that we said is a product of slavery. They will assume that with our culture, the thing that we cooked came from slavery. But they don't realize many of those things we carried over with us. Red rice for Gullah Geechee people is literally just jollof rice from the motherland. We didn't start that under conditions of slavery that was already with us. Knowing who you are lets you know our ancestors didn't start doing this thing simply as a reaction to slavery. Even the idea of creolizing language and creating new languages, that's something that's very common in Africa. And so give ourselves credit because if we don't, what we end up with is attributing All of our positive qualities and and the things that we have gained and and manifested through this process will end up kind of seeding it over to the overseer, seeding it over to the colonizer, that without them, we wouldn't have the thing that we have, which is not true.
3: So far, Sun has described the way Africanness survives in diaspora. He's offered insights into language. So let's take a listen as he brings this all into focus even more. Through examples of spoken Gullah.
1: Even when you do code switch and you go from speaking Gullah, Geechee is still going to be there in the way that you sound, in the way that you enunciate things. Mm-hmm. So people will say, Boy, you boy, you Even if you say you are past the butter, you know, somebody says you're past the butter, how much left in the bottle? You know how much how much left in the bottle? Pit it over there would be put it over there. Is linguistically Gullah Geechee. But if I said pit it down, that's put it down, but it's still pit it down. I'm using the accent, it's still gullah. If somebody say, um, you know, but who won this is? Who won this is? Of course, there's the word order thing as opposed to whose is this. But even if I switch it, you can still tell from the accent. And so back home, it doesn't matter if you're articulating the so-called standard English. If you have that accent still, they'll still call you Gichi.
3: The way African descendant people speak has historically received a lot of criticism by those who see it as improper or incorrect. How does Sun respond to this criticism?
1: People don't get their words from dictionaries. Dictionaries get their words from people. And so I want to move into just a state of being. Your existence is the validation in and of itself people have a right to say, I'm going to go back into my community, love on ourselves, fix ourselves, heal ourselves, find our tongue, get as closely adjacent to our mother tongue as possible, and do us. The real sort of magic happens when we start to communicate with one another. If I'm not getting an amen or, you know, some sort of thing because culturally that's the way that we communicate and we you know all right that's all right if you are singing and you mess up like that that's all right that's okay you go ahead you go you better sing now you better you know a- encouraging you sometimes you may or may not even be doing well and all it takes is for like another person to come along and say hey and that hey will get you across the line and the language isn't just being spoken it's being demonstrated it's being shown in physical ways there are many nonverbal cues and things that we look for to communicate it might be a look it might be a hand gesture it might be you know a, the way that we make a sound and so if you watch kaluguchi speak we speak with our whole body our hands are moving and all of these gestures almost performing the thing that we're saying
3: let's take everything that we've learned so far about diaspora africanness survival healing and adaptation and think about what it means for the classroom and what it would look like to frame topics around the concept of diaspora
0: I'm Kevin Toro. I teach at Arlington High School, currently teaching ninth grade world history and 10th grade U.S. history. Some electives on things like race and racism. With African diaspora in particular, it reflects sort of how I view myself, at least, and how I view it in education as well, which is really nice. um, Afro-Boricua is what I would, you know, describe myself as if we were getting really deep into it. That or Black. But the idea, of course, that Afro-Boricua is very specific. Even when we talk about like Puerto Rico, it's a very specific identity within that. For me, I had to find out (laughs) I was part of the African diaspora, accept that and learn about it because it wasn't necessarily something that was willing taught to me. So it's been a very personal journey for me. My family, largely from West Africa, coming over, then mixing with a lot of the other cultures in Puerto Rico, and then us eventually moving to the mainland, you know, U.S. So when I think of African diaspora, for me, it very much means that I am the tail end, at least from my own perception of this journey that starts in Africa.
3: What does Kevin focus on? when bringing the study of diaspora into his own classroom.
0: I see it as a story of resilience. I see it as a story of survivors. I would focus on the idea of the colonialism, and I would definitely talk and emphasize those systems of power and how they tried at least to dominate a people, because it really very much sets the context for the story of these people who were forced over, who were oppressed. You know, again, it's a story of surviving. It's a story of resilience.
3: What does it look like to introduce students to the African diaspora through stories of survival, resilience, and cultural contribution?
0: We always talk about the idea of highlighting influences for different cultures, right? If we think about the rice that was brought over to the South in the U.S. and how instrumental the rice was also brought in throughout the Caribbean, the people who were growing that, helping grow it, were already experienced in it because they were doing it in West Africa. And we always talk about the idea that we should be highlighting the the additions to culture that people make. And I think it challenges like ideas of white supremacy on like a very base level. What is white supremacy if not saying here's the white race who at the, you know, very tippy top is the standard of living. We see them in this idea that foundation civilization comes from these people Well, your whole civilization right now, even the commodities that you, you know, trade in capitalism, whether it be the song, whether it be the dance, whether it be the food ways, right? I think it shakes up a little bit of the foundations for what you thought. And it goes right up against the idea, of course, that they've only been sort of on the receiving end of things as far as civilization goes. It adds a sort of tunnel back for people to see, oh, these were not only people, it humanizes them to a certain degree. But look at their impact. How could you say if an impact has lasted for this long, how could you say those people are less than? So I think for the students, seeing that these cultures are so rich that they affect even the culture now, those are things that you can't really deny because it's everywhere. I mean, some people may be against it, but I would hope at least that it would shine some light on the whole
3: situation. The study of African diaspora is global and expansive. So how does Kevin make decisions about what to focus on and which case studies to bring into his classroom?
0: For a while, I was using things like the Haitian Revolution, because I think it very much typifies things because you have a complex system. You have the system of black, white, and everything in between ranked in a hierarchy, the white supremacy. The idea, of course, that you get eventually the first and only slaves of revolt to create a country out of itself. And then you get the damnation by the other countries after the fact, based off of just the what they perceive as the audacity of you know, the formerly enslaved the hard thing of course is that we're not fully there yet to the point where where a lot of teachers have created these materials shared them and have them out there i think it's very much so far up onto either something like the haitian revolution which is well researched and there's actual a lot of um, lessons out there, or is people relying on their own experience, which is what I did as well a lot when we talked about Puerto Rico, for instance. But it's interesting for someone who wants to teach more about those things, you do have to do a lot of the footwork to bring it into your class, I feel like, for the most part, at least now.
3: What type of classroom environment is conducive to studying this history? What makes the study of diaspora inviting, compelling? and stimulating for learners of diverse backgrounds and identities.
0: I always just try to be careful because sometimes when we're talking about things like the institution of slavery, when people start talking about simulations and stuff, that's a huge red flag. (laughs) But you obviously want to create a sense of wonder, curiosity in the students about this. And that all is very much within the multicultural framework for classroom, which I think some people do naturally. I know in my class, we already have a lot of the standards of discussion going forward. We still very much have to have this aspect of uh, bridging the gap, um, even between me and some of the students, and then between some of the students and other students, right? What I've always found is that Students are very willing to do so if you're following the ideas of and the basic premises of focusing on primary sources as the basis for everything.
3: What does Kevin see as the impact of his work? How does this influence students' thinking and overall classroom experience?
0: For me, right, it's very much being seen and heard in ways that, of course, from, you know, being part of the diaspora, being who I am uh, is validating those are my selfish reasons at least i had like this really transforming moment with this one student we went through a lot of this racial history we talked about the ideas of white supremacy and it was very much a a lot of the history was stuff that they hadn't heard before and this student was haitian in particular and they very much said to me after the fact they said it makes sense it wasn't necessarily a you know a moment of happiness as much as it was clarity. I mean, I've seen other kids come out of there, you know, students that didn't necessarily find themselves within the curriculum represented, but very much use that as a basis for, you know, humanistic adventures, clubs, rallies, and stuff like that going forward. I've just seen it, the impact, if that makes sense. Seeing it within like months, seeing it within years, but it's so rewarding.
3: That's it for today's episode. What Teachers Need to Know Africa Edition is a production of Primary Source, an education nonprofit dedicated to bringing the world into classrooms through professional development and curriculum. To learn more about Primary Source and to explore our podcasts and our other resources further, visit www.primarysource.org. Thanks to the African Studies Center at Boston University, whose support and collaboration made the creation of this podcast possible. To learn more about the Center, visit www.bu.edu slash Africa. And to learn more about the Center's Teaching Africa Outreach Program, visit www.bu.edu slash Africa slash Outreach. I'm Dan from Primary Source. Thanks again for listening.